Good morning, New City Church. It's a joy to be opening God's Word to us this morning. Uh, my name is Carte Bales. I'm a pastor in uh, the Presbyterian Church in America. My wife, Colleen, uh, and I have been attending uh, New City uh, BC before COVID, um, now watching uh, on YouTube uh, and being appropriately socially distanced. Uh, as a pastor, I serve uh, our denominational sending agency, Mission to the World, uh, where we have uh, about 700, almost 700 missionaries serving in over 80 countries of the world proclaiming the gospel. And it's a privilege to bring God's word to us this morning, coming from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, you can follow along uh, the reading with me on the screens up here uh, or in your Bible, Matthew chapter 9. This is God's very word. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. May you grow us by the power of your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This is your first Sunday here at uh, New City Fellowship, uh, or New City Church. Let me welcome you. Uh, we're glad you're here. But if you've been coming for a while, you know that we've been uh, going through a, a sermon series, working through the first book of the Bible together, the book of Genesis. Probably wonder how our text this morning in Matthew has anything at all to do with Genesis. So allow me a few minutes to connect uh, our text this morning um, to Genesis um, through a very brief biblical roadmap of time. We begin the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 where uh, God says he created everything from nothing and it was all very good. And we learned about man's rebellion against this creator God in Genesis chapter 3, which we call the fall, followed by the steady drip of decline of mankind through chapters 4 through 11. And last week, Mike McAuliffe brought us into chapter 12, where we find mankind, in, in Mike's words, physically and spiritually at the end of the line. The decline of mankind seems to be complete, but God, but God intervenes and announces to Abram those unexpected, undeserved, unconditional, gracious words of blessing in Genesis 12. Let me read them. Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice these two words, nation and family. Now let's fast forward to the future, our future, to the end of time, through the revelation given to the Apostle John, written in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. And here's what John is shown. After this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the midst of a world at its end with no hope, God announces blessing to a man, to make him a great nation, which we see at the end of time becomes a blessing that reaches to every nation, all of the families of the earth, every tribe and people in language, people who had no hope, people who could not rescue themselves who were at the end of the line, given the gift of faith through God's grace. Pictured here eternally praising the one who announced grace to Abraham. So we see the blessing of Abraham by God work out through history in that the blessing of Abraham coming to all of the nations of the earth, to people in all of the families of the earth, just as God promised to Abraham. The same promise we heard about last week. How does this happen? Well, that's... That brings us to our big idea this morning, to tie these together, to connect the blessing of Abraham to this vision of the consummation and fulfillment of time, which is this. God's compassionate grace to you is your invitation to God's compassionate mission to the nations. That's the big idea. First, God's people are rescued by his compassionate grace alone. We fast forward from Abraham in history uh, here to the earthly ministry of Jesus and Matthew, where here Matthew writes that Jesus went throughout all of the cities and all of the villages, and as he went, he saw crowds of people described as helpless and harassed. Everywhere he, he traveled, there were throngs of people, helpless and harassed. Matthew's portrayal, his language that he uses here, is of sheep being run constantly before packs of wolves who are so run out in their fatigue, it's just they're ready to lie down and just wait for the end. They're so tired of being beaten up by the world with no protection. Now it's just better to give up and stop fighting. That's the language the force of the language that Matthew uses to paint this picture of the crowds. And I, I don't have to convince you of that reality. In the last nine years, over 11 million Syrians have become refugees, forced from their homes, 
the very homes by shelling and shooting, harassed and helpless. In India, where Colleen and I served, millions are kept in modern-day slavery, enslaved to working in brick kilns or granite quarries. And when COVID hit, uh, the poor lower caste workers were fired as companies closed and left in the streets with no means, no way to return to their villages. Southeast Asia, young women are routinely sold across borders into unimaginable futures. Harassed, helpless. There are many confusing voices of religious systems promoting contradictory and competing ideas of where to find peace, how to have a good life, how to escape the wolves, and it leaves billions exhausted, asking, is anything really true? Is there peace for me at all? Helpless and harassed, crowds running from the wolves. But it's not just there, it's here too, isn't it? 360,000 plus people dead from coronavirus in this country, not to mention the families whose lives left behind shattered, and, and many of whom are asking about the frailty and meaning of life. Crowds in the streets shouting for justice and a recognition of the humanity and dignity of all people, or who become sufficiently enraged to erupt in violence in our nation's capital. It's also personal. Maybe I just wonder if I'm going to find work again how my family will be provided for, harassed. And voices in our culture tell us there is no objective truth. There is no objective morality. There's only my truth and your truth, my right. And do we wonder that the crowds are tired? Our culture tells us the answers we need are found in a particular political party or more police or less police or more education, or a certain life experience, and the crowds are run out, done, exposed, unprotected. And in the middle of this picture, there is one, there's only one who sees the condition of the crowds, who sees the wolves, Jesus. This itinerant, homeless rabbi from Nazareth who knows perfectly well what it's like to be harassed everywhere he goes. The disciples don't see it. In, in John's parallel account, Jesus has to say to the disciples, lift your eyes and look. They're not seeing it. It's Jesus, God himself, who per personally witnesses and understands the fallenness and the brokenness and the helplessness of his own creation. Notice his response. Matthew says in verse 36, Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw them. And not today's idea of compassion. I, I see a homeless guy, here's a dollar. Ma Matthew is talking about a visceral compassion that tears your heart out, the kind that shatters you. It's a sort of compassion that compels you to spend everything you have to fix the situation. It's the kind that breaks your heart. Does your heart break? That's the same compassion that's associated 
with Jesus throughout the, the Gospels. And Scripture is very clear. Every time Jesus is said to have compassion, he acts on that compassion. Matthew 14, Jesus saw a crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Matthew 15, Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they'd been with him for three days and they were hungry. And he feeds 4,000. Luke 7, Jesus sees the widow of Nain whose life had come crashing down with the death of her son and her life was shattered. Jesus had compassion on her, raised her son from the dead. The compassion of Jesus is not powerless. It drives him to action. And that's the way he sees the crowd. He sees the true condition of the crowds. And moved by his compassion, he does what seems impossible, even improbable, to free them from their helpless plight. The compassionate shepherd himself becomes a lamb. That's what we read in the text this morning. He becomes a lamb in order to rescue the sheep, doesn't he? That's how John identifies him, John the Baptist, when he sees him coming. Behold, the lamb of God, the shepherd who has compassion for the sheep himself becomes a sacrificial lamb in order to rescue the sheep, like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah writes. In his compassion, he sees you, helpless and harassed, your need of a shepherd. He runs to you and he gives everything, everything to free you. He sees you and he responds, taking on himself all the harassment suffered by the sheep, where all of their fatigue and brokenness and helplessness is nailed with him at the cross. In his compassion, he gives himself. And I think it's at this moment in Matthew, in this depiction, that the disciples understand they themselves used to be part of that crowd, helpless and harassed, until Jesus saw them and called to them. But God. Notice Matthew intentionally uses the word saw. Jesus saw the crowds. If you look back in Matthew, to the calling of the disciples, it's the same language. Matthew 4, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and he called them to follow him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and John, and he called them. Matthew 9, Jesus passed by on from there and saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Matthew's not commenting here on Jesus's visual acuity. When Jesus sees with his compassion, he sees with an eye to rescue, to bringing the sheep into his care and protection. He sees and moved with his compassion, he acts. He knows the remedy is not political party affiliation, or a different citizenship, or better education, or more police or less police, or more money or a better neighborhood. No, the remedy to rescue helpless sheep is himself, is Jesus. And the question the text asks us this morning is, what about you? I think in that moment, the disciples very clearly understand their 
their situation, their standing. Jesus had also seen them and it called to them as broken and helpless and harassed men, saying, come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, you who are harassed. The blessing of Abraham coming through the very one who blesses and brings life in their spiritual deadness. Their hearts longing for truth, satisfied by truth himself. Their need for rest met by the one who promises to make his sheep lie down in green pastures by still waters. Their ache to be loved, filled by love himself. He saw them. They knew it. They were part of the crowds, helpless and harassed, but now are sheep under the care of the good shepherd. By his compassion and his grace alone, they'd been rescued only because Jesus saw them and had compassion on them. Same with us today. And the question is, are you one? Here in this part of the narrative, you're in one of two places. You're either rescued by the good shepherd, by his compassion alone, or you're in the crowds, helpless and harassed, blown about by the constant demands and changing wisdom of a culture and society that continues to nip at every part of your life, unable to rescue yourself. If you're still in the crowds, you need to know this. The creator of all things sees you with his heart-rending compassion. He knows your exhaustion. He knows your need of healing. And he says, come to me and receive healing and forgiveness. Come to me and rest. That's the good news of the gospel. The message that Jesus has been proclaiming throughout all of these cities and villages. The message of God's love poured out through forgiveness in him with the invitation to come home as his son, as his daughter. You've been plucked from the crowds by Jesus. The apostle Paul says this about you and who you are now. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because of Jesus, you're just old, smelly, tired sheep. You're now in his household. You're now family. A friend of mine told me a story about his receiving a wedding invitation a few years ago from a longtime family friend. Um, and in the invitation was a separate card. And the only thing written on that card were the words, within the ribbon. Within the ribbon. He had no idea what it meant, but he and his wife went to this, this grand wedding, many people, and they found an usher and, and showed the card and, and asked what it meant. And the usher said, follow me. And he starts leading my friend and his wife through this, this crowd of people walking toward the front. And they pass table after table after table, and they finally get to the very front where the family is seated with a ribbon around their area. And my friend said, there must be some mistake. But the usher assured him they were to be seated together with the family, within the ribbon. If you belong to Christ, your family, you've been made members of his household. But if you're still in the crowds, let the compassion and blessing of the Savior rest on you 
as you receive his grace and his forgiveness. That's beautiful, isn't it? But it's also incomplete. Why? Because of the crowds. And that brings me to the second point. God's people are invited to bless the nations through his compassionate mission. Listen, the crowds are still there, aren't they? Two and a half billion people in Asia alone, helpless and harassed, most without the good news of the gospel anywhere around them. Millions in America, no doubt many on your block, who think they understand what Christianity is. Maybe they've even adopted some form of it. Or they've rejected Jesus entirely without ever really understanding the compassion of the Creator for them. The crowds are still there. And and the danger is that it's easy to live within the ribbon. Standing there with the disciples, with the family, but our vision is inside that circle and we don't see the crowds, don't see the masses who are still helpless and harassed. A three-year-old granddaughter loves playing hide-and-go-seek with her, her papa. And you know how three-year-olds are. When it's her turn to hide, um, she just runs into another room, and she puts her hands over her eyes, and she just giggles. And she thinks she's hiding. So I have to pretend, you know, I, I don't see her. And I check everywhere. There is not any giggling before I get to the place where there is giggling. And listen, eventually she'll figure out <laughs> that just having her eyes covered with her hand doesn't mean I'm not there. You know, no, I, I'm still here. You get the point. Within the ribbon, the crowds are still there. We may not see them, or we may actually see them and apply our explanation as to why they're harassed and helpless. They don't work hard enough. They don't have enough education. They wear masks, or they don't wear masks. Believe something weird, or just different. Pastor friend recently posted, being different doesn't make, make them enemies. It makes them the harvest. Jesus sees them. Vast crowds of sheep running headlong from the wolves and has compassion because they're helpless and harassed. So how can we see the crowds? Same way the disciples did. First, by continually remembering, reminding ourselves we were rescued from the same crowds through God's gracious blessing alone when Jesus saw us and had compassion on us. Only when our starting point is grace, where the but God that intersected our lives changed them for eternity. Otherwise, we end up talking about passages like this in in really unbiblical and unhelpful ways, like... Jesus says, pray, so just just pray. Jesus says, give, so just give. But that's to completely miss the point. Seeing the crowds and responding to them rests on remembering we were those sheep and have been brought within the ribbon only because Jesus saw us and had compassion on us and gave himself for us. What's our response to that? 
In verse 37, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I wonder how many of the disciples thought, oh good, I'm glad I'm a fisherman. Sounds like Jesus is looking for farmers. But no, um, read on to verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus has bagged the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out laborers into his harvest. Notice the his. This harvest belongs to him. And here's why that emphasis is so important. It's the continuing compassion of Jesus himself that sustains the work of taking the gospel to our neighborhoods, to Metro Atlanta, to all nations, as he answers our prayers to send laborers. The good shepherd still looks on the crowds with compassion, his compassion. And we don't have to gen that up in ourselves. His compassion assures us of his response, which doesn't depend on our plans or how we feel we pray. That's the response. Pray, Christ says, and his compassion for the crowds of harassed sheep. Beg me to send more workers into the harvest. And, and this is, to me, one of the most amazing statements in the New Testament, in my opinion. Think of this. The landowner invites the hired help into the work of the farm by telling them to ask him to send more hired help. Why? Why would the landowner ask servants to ask him to send more help? I think it only works if two things are true. First, the landowner must already be prepared to send more laborers. And second, Jesus is inviting the servants into a discussion between not servants and landowner, but family. This is a family discussion. This isn't a hired help discussion. Go dig a ditch over there. This is a landowner inviting his adopted family into making a request of him that he stands fully ready to satisfy, to send laborers, to rescue sheep by his grace. When I meet with churches and talk about global missions, I'm, I'm almost always asked, what's the greatest need for global missions today? And I always say, more laborers. The Lord of the harvest continues to send, but there are a lot of things at Mission of the World that we have to say no to um, regularly simply because we don't have enough people to help. We have ministries of teaching and justice and mercy and opportunities for good organizational leaders, um, trained business people, so many laborers are needed, and the harvest is still white with harassed sheep. And the Lord of the harvest invites us, plead earnestly with me, and I will send people by my compassion into my harvest. But I ended our passage today at verse 1 in chapter 10 for a reason. These disciples, formerly smelly, harassed sheep, who are seen by the master, rescued by his compassionate grace, are invited into the work of the landowner, and then themselves are sent into the harvest. 
Jesus almost immediately begins answering the very prayer he's invited his disciples to pray. And he answers it by sending them. But the disciples not only just prayed and went, if you trace the story of the early church and these disciples through the New Testament and in, into um, early church history, we also see that they sent others into the harvest. The early church was a sending church. We see that in, in just one example in Syrian Antioch, uh, the church that we read about in, in Acts chapter 13, where Bar, uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out from this church. And from that one church in church history, we can see a movement of the gospel spread throughout much of Asia Minor and on into Asia and almost completely through China within the first century of the church. Sorry, first millennium. The prayers become goers, and they become senders by the gracious family invitation of their good shepherd, the Lord of the harvest. So what's your role? If he has seen you with his compassion, and he has called you with the good news of his grace, you have been seated with him within the ribbon. And now your shepherd invites you to look outside the ribbon and to earnestly ask him to send more laborers. He says, my compassion will sustain the mission, but I want you to pray for more laborers and watch me respond. And if you're part of this family, he invites you to earnestly ask him to send more laborers. He stands ready to answer those prayers. He also invites you to go into his field and join him in his work. For many of us, that's participating in a missional community. For some, finding out where to serve locally, maybe talking with Patrick or, or Mike about how you can help with Youth for Christ or serving through the PATH project, looking for ways to love the widow, the orphan, asking the Lord of the harvest, show me lives in need of this blessing and grace. Now for some, it's also possible he's inviting you to do something even more challenging his invitation to you may be to go. Leave where you're living now. Go somewhere else where harassed and helpless sheep are numerous, where the shepherd's compassion may not be known for miles around and to serve them. Maybe taking your current vocation and doing it somewhere else. There's very few Christians. Or, or learning to serve in entirely new ways. Are you one of those? Maybe you are. It's a very exciting question to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Am I one that you are calling by your grace to leave and serve another people in another place? If you pray that question, and God seems to be saying yes, Pastor Ryan or Brandon or I would love to talk with you more about what that would look like, or the New City uh, Missions team, Bill Golden, Sherry Edwards, Sherry Ryan, Willette Owens, they'd love to talk to you about how to explore what the Lord might be saying to you. And for each one called to go, it takes the rest of us to send and support and resource and pray for them as partners. Each local church throughout the world 
is still commissioned by the landowner to go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Some people he'll invite to to leave and go into the harvest, but each one that does needs a support team to pray, provide encouragement to visit them, provide money for life and ministry. The 1% who go need 99% who are called to stay here to give themselves in praying and encouraging and giving from the financial resources that God has provided. So let me land this plane by revisiting where we started and where we end in time. God, by his grace alone, enters a world that is hopeless for mankind. And he announces blessing on one man and his family to make him a great nation through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we end time by seeing a picture of God's one family comprised of all the nations standing around the throne and praising him for that blessing and grace. How did that happen? By the work of the good shepherd who secures that blessing through the giving of his own life out of his compassion for harassed and helpless sheep like me, like you. How do the nations get there? The family. Through the family. And the family's invitation to pray for him to send more laborers by turning our gaze outside of the ribbon and going and by supporting all who do. Just to ground that in Scripture, bringing these ideas together, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen, if you're in Christ, you are family. And an heir of the gospel promises and blessing to Abraham. And now the good shepherd invites us to take that same blessing to all nations through the same compassionate grace that reached us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that These great and precious promises have been made uh, when it seemed like there was no hope, when mankind was at its end. And from that announcement, uh, that same promise has come to us, fulfilled in Christ, secured in him, where at the end of time we'll see all nations peoples, languages, standing before your throne, praising you, having inherited that same blessing. Father, help us look outside the ribbon that we may participate with you 
by the shepherd's compassion for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.